What does it mean to be in relationship with the wisdom of our ancestors? How might the spiritual teachings of the past be relevant to the way we think about some of the most pressing issues of today? My name is Michael Wexler, and with my father, Professor Philip Wexler, and mystical scholar Ellie Rubin, I am one of the authors of the book Social Vision, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's transformative paradigm for the world. In Social Vision, we sought to answer the previous questions by exploring the teachings of Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, and Jewish spirituality as articulated by Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the seventh in a line of what are known as Lubavitcher Rebbe's. In this second season of Social Vision Talks, we'll be unpacking some of the major themes of the book through the lens of the third Social Vision Conference held in October of 2021. The scholars, activists, and practitioners featured in this series are innovators in their fields, and it is my pleasure to present to you this groundbreaking conversation. Today we'll be hearing from two preeminent scholars in the field of Jewish studies. Lawrence Schiffman of New York University is widely renowned as an authority on Judaic studies with a special expertise in the Dead Sea Scrolls and Talmudic literature. Dartmouth College's Shul Magid, likewise, is one of the most exciting thinkers in the field of modern Jewish thought today, having written extensively on Hasidic philosophy and Jewish identity. Their conversation at the Social Vision Conference in October of 2021 was entitled, Exploring the Thought of Religious Giants. Please enjoy. Philip Wexler and Ellie Rubin's Social Vision is, as I read it, an attempt to reframe Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson's socio-theological project as a broad attempt to expand the notion of redemptive liberation by promoting good works as a precondition for the imminent messianic era. This idea has roots in earlier Kabbalistic tradition, especially through the visionary writings of Tikkun Olam and Lurianic teaching that, as I argued elsewhere, may have viewed the conversion or repatriation of returning conversos as the sine qua non for messianic politics at its time, centered in a newly populated land of Israel. For social vision, however, what is novel and worthy of further exploration is that for Schneerson, the role of America is paramount, more so than many who have examined his work tend to stress. Following the lead set by social vision, I want to suggest that we need to see Schneerson's work outside the orbit of Jewish precedent alone and see it more broadly as continuing the ongoing debate in Christian America on the question of what has been labeled in the early 20th century as the social gospel. I take this approach in part because for Wexler and Rubin's project to achieve its maximum success, I think it will need to prevent Schneerson as more than a Jewish thinker or visionary, but an American theologian who has a vision of humanity writ large. So today I want to turn directly to Schneerson's social vision by reviewing it through two overlapping but distinct lenses. The social gospel theology of American theologian and Baptist preacher Walter Rauschenbusch, who lived from 1861 to 1918, and whose books Christianity and the Social Crisis in 1907 and A Theology for the Social Gospel in 1917 changed the nature of American Christianity on the role of religion and society. And second, to contrast Schneerson's Jewish messianic politics 
which I see as post-millennial, which I'll explain below, and thus close to Rauschenbusch, with that of his contemporary Joel Teitelbaum of Satmer, who I view as a premillennial thinker and thus closer to certain forms of evangelicalism. To better situate Rauschenbusch, Schneerson, and Teitelbaum in America, we need to first introduce two theological categories that will better enable us to see how Schneerson and Teitelbaum present two forms of American messianic fundamentalism. In Christianity, and I would also argue in Judaism as well, the two regnant theories that surround redemptive theologies are labeled by Protestants as premillennialist and postmillennialist. Millennialism more generally is a Protestant belief in society's close proximity to the end time, and in the case of postmillennialism, invites political activism to create conditions for the imminent redemption. Premillennialists, in contrast, often cultivate a separatist mentality that builds walls against the impure influence of a decadent society in preparation for redemption. Both of these options exhibit a highly charged sense of urgency. While premillennialists largely claim to live outside history, viewing society's state of irreligion as irredeemable and even a necessary part of the, the divine plan to bring the end time, postmillennialists, and Schneerson is one of them, have a more optimistic view of history, believing that contemporary moment, even in its irreligiosity, represents the first stage of redemption. Post-millennialists have often had cal strong Calvinist inclinations, some examples being the Second Great Awakening beginning in the 1790s and in different forms later in the social gospel of Rauschenbusch in the early 20th century. In my view, Schneerson represents a form of post-millennialist Judaism, while Teitelbaum a premillennialist one. Both are equally messianic in that both believe that, show, that the Shoah represented the beginning of the end time. For example, Teitelbaum begins his introduction to Vayoa Moshe with a discussion about the Holocaust and his view that we now live in Ikvada de Meshicha, and in this way, I think the entire book including his views on Zionism, is an expression of his understanding of what is required of the Jew to facilitate redemption. As Randall Baumer recently put it in his new book, Bad Faith, Race and the Rise of the Religious Right, citing Nelson Darby, he quotes, I call premillennialism a theology of despair because it allowed evangelicals to throw up their hands in resignation. At the same time that the social gospel began to take hold among Protestant liberals, based on the conviction that God can redeem not only sinful individuals, but sinful social institutions, end quote. Rauschenbusch's intervention of the social gospel, which I argue is a precursor to Schneerson's view, is based on what one interpreter called, quote, the kingdom of God as a social historical reality, end quote, that Jesus's message was one of social transformation by reaching out to the world and creating a moral society. It is a rejection of what Rauschenbusch calls an ascetic Christianity that looked inward and upward. As an example, I, I was immediately struck by the similarity between how Rauschenbusch viewed Jesus and Chabad viewed Schneerson in the title of Chaim Miller's biography, Turning Judaism Outwards, a precise title in my view, and one that draws us back to Rauschenbusch's fight with the church of his time. Jesus was, for Rauschenbusch, an attempt to turn an early pre-Rabbinic Judaism, the Jesus movement, outward. Rauschenbusch's alternative to ascetic Christianity of the church was a reconstruction of what he called primitive Christianity, 
that he's drawing from the Tubigan school in the 19th century. That is a reconstruction of the Jesus movement within Judaism as a movement of social transformation. He writes as follows, and this I'm quoting Rauschenbusch here, the kingdom of God involved the social transformation of humanity. The hope of eternal life, as it was then held, was the desire to escape from this world and be done with it. The kingdom was a revolutionary idea. Eternal life was an ascetic idea, end quote. While Rausch and Butch writes from within a progressive Christianity and Schneerson from with a highly traditional Jewish one, both, in my view, offer similar critiques of their respective religions by viewing the world not as a place to be denied, but as a place to be transformed. Others, such as Rev. Cook, offered similar alternatives, but for Cook, redemption was embedded in the transformation of national Jewish secular politics and Schneerson in the social transformation of the world through the vestiges of Jewish expansiveness. Thus, as I read his vision, the Noahide Laws program is perhaps the centerpiece, the very raison d'etre of Chabad social gospel. The move to universalize from the particular, not in theory, but in practice, speaks directly to Rauschenbusch's theory of social transformation. Another interesting contrast would be to early 20th century classical reform Judaism in America, which had its own social vision, for example, in the thought of Kaufman Kohler, who was the rector of Hebrew Union College when Rauschenbusch was writing. Reform social vision differed from the Hasidic one of Chabad in that it was not founded on a traditional messianic impulse and was based more in assimilatory behavior through which tradition is reconstructed, as, as Kohler wrote, quote, in fullest accordance with, the, with our Occidental civilization. Rather, than fidelity to a tradition as understood exclusively through the past. Classical reform, Kola specifically, felt that both Christianity and Judaism in seeking their respective original roots would turn out to be pretty compatible. Protestantism to the Jesus movement before the established church and reform to biblical prophetic origins not filtered through the lens of the rabbis. Kola was not advocating any unity with Christianity, quite the opposite. His view of reform was quite anti-Christian. As articulated very carefully in an 1888 sermon delivered at the Bethel Synagogue in New York entitled Jew and Gentile, Kohler believed that reform Judaism better exemplified the ethical religion Christianity claimed for itself. Schneerson surely won the day over Kohler and his spiritual progeny in post-war America. But one must consider that part of Schneerson's success is his traditional post in his traditional post-millennialism is that he intuited the multicultural turn in American society decades before it happened. Thus, once the celebration of diversity as opposed to its mere tolerance emerged, the institutional structures and educational network were already in place to enable Chabad to maximize its project. It took reform social vision, very successful during Americans' progressive era from about 1880 to 1920, until the end of the 20th century to recalibrate itself in light of multiculturalism. Teitelbaum offers an interesting contrast to Schneerson and Rauschenbusch, both of whom were anti-apocalyptic messianists. The coming end time, the Mashiach, would be hastened by creating the conditions for its coming the cultivation of a moral society. That's both in Schneerson and Rauschenbusch. But for Schneerson and Rauschenbusch, America was the most opportune place to do this. 
For Schneerson, the Noahide laws and promoting a moment of silence in public schools was part of that vision turning Judaism outward, as Miller's book title suggests. Teitelbaum, on the other hand, was a more apocalyptic thinker. The prelude to Messiah required the appearance of a satanic force in the guise of Messiah in Christianity and Antichrist. For Teitelbaum, Zionism in the form of a secular state of Israel before redemption. In Teitelbaum's premillennial view, the surviving remnant must resist the temptation in order for the floodgates of redemption to open. Thus, for him, the messianic act, that is for Teitelbaum, the messianic act was one of resistance, Shevi Altasev, not resistance to the moral corruption of the world. That was a given, even necessary. But the resistance of the secularization of the messianic project in Zionism, even or Dafka in light of its religious adherence. And here I want to make a somewhat provocative claim, if what I said before wasn't provocative, that depends. I do not think that Schneerson was any less anti-Zionist than Teitelbaum. They were each just responding to different iterations of Zionism. While Schneerson had sympathy for political Zionism as it enabled Jews to live in Eretz Yisrael and served as a shield to protect Jews, Schneerson had little sympathy, even antipathy, for the cultural Zionist project of people like Achadaam, to say nothing of Yosef Chaim Brenner or Michal Berdachevsky, who sought Zionism as a substitute for a traditional Judaism or in another form, the negation of the diaspora. I would go as far as to conjecture that Schneerson's messianic project, his social gospel, is a decidedly diasporic one. Messiah will come from America because of America. America, as a Medina Shel Chesed, is the place where the social transformation can be best implemented. Teitelbaum, on the other hand, had no interest in Zionism's cultural project because he lived in a premillennial world where society had to bottom out before it would be redeemed. Thus, fighting pure secularism was futile, but he did care about Zionism's political project as the antithesis of the messianic trajectory. And thus fighting against it was for him the messianic act par excellence. America was crucial for Teitelbaum as well because its tolerance and diversity best enabled him to build his enclave of society and holy remnant in wait for the end time as illustrated in his vision of Karius Yoel. So I'm suggesting we can better understand Schneerson's project if we situate it with Rauschenbusch's social gospel and contrast it with Teitelbaum's premillennial apocalypticism. One big difference between Rauschenbusch and Schneerson was that Rauschenbusch's postmillennialism did not have redemption or the second coming as an imperative. It was certainly the goal, but the social gospel lacked the messianic impulse of premillennial Christianity that today envisions Israel as part of its dispensationalist redemptive vision. In this sense, Schneerson's social vision is post-millennial in tenor and practice, but somewhat pre-millennial in impulse, that is, that the end time is near. Even as I somewhat disagree with Martha Himmelfarb in suggesting that Schneerson is an apocalyptic thinker in her study, The Apocalypse of Brief History. For Schneerson, social transformation is thus not a slow process, as in Rauschenbusch, but is generated by a belief that the final days are approaching. In some way, then, the alliance of Chabad and premillennial evangelicalism is not unreasonable, as each feel they are living on the cusp of redemption, as they each see it. And Schneerson and Teitelbaum share a vision of imminent redemption, but differ on how Jews need to respond.
In practice, however, I submit that Chabad's premillennial inclinations may be more tactical than substantive, especially in its post-Schneerson era. Reading Chabad writings and books for a wider audience such as Social Vision, Miller's Judaism Turned Outward, or Simon Jacobson's Toward a Meaningful Life, one gets more of a sense of Walsh or Rauschenbusch than the contemporary angst and expectation of premillennial dispensationalists like Tim LaHaye's Left Behind Books, an apocalyptic pulp fiction series that sold more than 70,000 copies. In Israel, it's a different story as the messianism fomented by Cookie and Zionism in some circles has become fused with Schneerson's social vision. Think of the work of Yitzhak Ginsburg, among others. This naturally speaks to a more highly charged messianic activism than we see in America. Thus, the premillennialism of Chabad is more potent in its Israeli iteration. But if Wexler and Rubin are right, that in fact for Schneerson, America as the Medina Shel Chesed and not the secular state of Israel is where the messianic moment will ultimately arise, Rauschenbusch and even Kaufman Kohler may be better companions to think with than Cook or other post-war predecessors. But that is the subject for another time. Thank you very much.